Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Uh, and then we're going to go forward, I think, to um, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And then we're going to go over to 1 Thessalonians and we're in chapter 4, starting at verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello. Uh, if you don't know me, if we haven't met before, my name's Kirsten and it's my pleasure and privilege to um, be speaking from God's Word today. Um, we've been in a series in 1 Thessalonians uh, looking at how the gospel impacts our lives. Um, if you wanted to have a Bible open, I know we haven't got Bibles in the pews, but there's some up the front, or if you want to follow along um, just on a, your phone, on a Bible app, uh, that would be probably handy. <clears throat> have you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? It's certainly a question that I spent most of my 20s agonising over, and to be honest, I've spent a lot of my 30s agonising over it as well. In a way, it's both the blessing and the curse of life in the modern West. For most people, we have so much freedom and an abundance of choice about what to do with our lives that it can actually feel quite crushing. If this is a question you've asked, or maybe you're in a season of asking right now, I have some good news, because our text today, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, gives us the answer. 
And no, if you're scrambling to look right now, it doesn't tell you exactly what job you should take or if and to whom you should get married. The message is both simpler and more challenging than that. The first half of chapter four, which we're looking at today, is where Paul really gets to the main teaching section of his letter. When he starts giving the church uh, at Thessalonica more direct advice on how to live lives that please God. And he begins all of this by telling them exactly what God's will is for their lives. And if you're a Christian, this is your life's purpose too. Look with me at verse 3. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified essentially means to be made holy. That's it. God's will for your life and mine is the same as his will for the Thessalonians, that we would be holy. This is echoed further down in verse 7, where Paul reminds us that our calling is to live a holy life. But what does this actually mean? What does it mean to be holy? I think we have some pretty funny cultural ideas around holiness. Uh, I mean, you can just think of the expression, to be holier than thou. Holy is a word understood by many people to be a synonym for being boring, serious, no fun, at worst, at being judgmental, prudish or proud. But the Bible gives us a different definition. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words that we translate as holy in English have this sense of being set apart. Yes, there's also an aspect of moral purity, uh, but the term holiness is first used in the Bible to talk about God's uniqueness, the power and the glory and the perfection that he alone possesses. Then Israel, God's chosen people, were commanded to be holy by living in a distinct, set-apart way that reflected God's holiness. Now, to be set apart, you have to be set apart from something and set apart for something. And the Bible makes clear that when God is calling his people to be holy, this means they're to be set apart from sin, that is, living self-centered, self-directed lives that seek after our own glory, and that we're to be set apart for God, for his glory. God gives his people laws and guidelines to show us how to do this, how to live a good life that avoids the pain and the problems of sin. This also means living in a unique, distinct way that does set us apart from other people and cultures in order to represent and point people to the holy character of God. You see, living a holy life is not about obeying God's commands so that we seem really good. It's about the way we live, showing those around us how God is good. When God says, be holy as I am holy, it's a call for us to imitate his character. Of course, we aren't God, and there are some aspects of his nature that it would be wrong for us to try and take on. We can't be all-knowing or all-powerful, ever-present or self-sustaining. These are things that God alone possesses. But we can and we should seek to imitate the aspects of his character that he's designed us to reflect. We should seek to be loving as he is loving, gracious and generous as he is gracious and generous, merciful and forgiving 
as he is merciful and forgiving. It's important to note here that we become increasingly holy in these ways as a result of our salvation in Christ, not as a prerequisite for being saved. No, the New Testament makes abundantly clear that the second we come to Jesus in repentance, he declares us holy. From that moment, when God looks at us, he no longer sees any of our failures, only Christ's perfection. This can be a bit confusing. If God already considers us holy, why do we need to keep working and trying to be even more holy? If I can build on an analogy that John used in his sermon last week, uh, it's a little bit like a marriage. As John helpfully explained, our union with Christ, like a marriage, has both a legal and a relational dimension. And these concepts are really helpful for us when we consider our call to holiness. If you think about a marriage, from the moment you say your vows and the minister or the celebrant declares you married, and once the marriage certificate is signed, that's it. Legally, you are now married. Now, assuming you have entered this marriage freely and willingly, uh, your lifestyle and your behaviours are also going to change uh, to reflect your new legal status. You'll start living in the same home as your spouse. You might have shared calendars, shared bank accounts, and more importantly, your desires and your priorities are going to be reshaped around the love that you have for your husband or wife. You'll spend more time with them. You'll make decisions and sacrifices to honour them, and you'll do everything in your power to make them happy. But from a purely legal standpoint, none of these actions make you any more or less married. In and of themselves, they don't impact your status legally as a married person. But if you did get married to someone and from the wedding day on, you didn't live with that person, you didn't spend any time with them, you didn't speak to them, you didn't show them any affection, that would be really strange. Yes, on paper, you would be legally married, but it's obvious you wouldn't have any kind of meaningful relationship with that person. You wouldn't be able to enjoy any of the benefits of this loving, committed partnership. And in many ways, the same is true for our relationship with God. The moment we make our commitment to Christ, our status before God changes from sinner to saint. We are declared holy. If we are in Christ, holiness is our irrevocable legal status before God. But God wants to do more than just change our legal status. He wants us. He wants a relationship because he wants us to be able to enjoy all of the benefits and blessings of loving and being loved by him. When we truly understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, giving our lives to him will be more than just a one-off statement of commitment. Because the closer we come to Jesus, the more we really get to know him, the more we'll love him. We'll want to be more like our saviour and increasingly reflect his holy character because we love him. And even more than we love him and want to change, Jesus loves us and he helps us change. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We rest in both the promise that 
Christ has already declared us holy and the promise that he is always at work making us holy as we walk with him through the ups and downs of life. Now, if you're wondering, but how does this actually help me make decisions about my life, like what job I should take or whether I should buy that house or if I should marry that person? Let me encourage you with this. When holiness becomes our greatest goal, we have a really helpful guiding principle for making any decision because we just need to ask, will doing this help my holiness or hinder it? Of course, sometimes the answer will be neutral. If we're choosing between two equally good options, uh, neither of which seem to have any real positive or negative impact on us following Jesus, it means we have the freedom to make any choice and give the outcome over to God and pray that he would use it to grow us in holiness either way. But sometimes the answer will be more obviously in the negative. For example, if you're considering taking a job opportunity and you know that it means you'll almost never get to church, you won't be able to be part of an MC, you won't have any time for people, you won't have time for your friends or your family or for God, then no matter how professionally fulfilling or well-paid, you have to consider, is this really the best thing for my greatest good? Likewise, while it's maybe not black and white, and there are lots of different viewpoints in the church around this, um, with dating someone who's not a Christian, One helpful question to ask is just, will dating this person help me grow in my holiness? Is it going to make it easier or harder to live faithfully for Jesus? Even if the person accepts you have a faith, are they going to actively encourage you in it? And really those same questions questions apply for relationships with Christians. And I don't want to oversimplify things. I know life's decisions involve multiple factors and it can be really hard. And it's harder when, even as people who love God, we still daily have to battle with our sinful desires. When we have to battle against a thousand competing voices from the culture around us, telling us that we're missing out on the good life. It's hard when we still sometimes doubt that living God's way will bring us the best outcomes. And this brings us to our biggest pitfall, what makes holy living so hard for us. And honestly, it's the same thing that's been true of humankind since the Garden of Eden. We walk away from God's call to holiness when we believe the lie that God's purpose for us isn't our flourishing, but that he somehow wants us to miss out. Now, it's much easier to follow God when our holy living aligns with the values and norms of our culture. Things like being generous and loving, kind, they're not very controversial and they're generally encouraged by the society around us. The real challenge comes when our call to holiness leads us to actions and lifestyles that are completely in conflict with what's seen as good and right in our culture. Because it's here when every other voice around you is telling you otherwise, that it's the hardest to trust that God is asking for your obedience, not to deprive you of anything, but for your greatest good. And one of the most difficult and complex areas we encounter this in is in our sexuality. And Paul focuses on this issue from verses three to six. As a key part of their sanctification, 
he commands the Thessalonian church to abstain, meaning completely and utterly stay away from, sexual immorality. The Greek word for this, porneia, is a bit of a catch-all term for basically any kind of sexual activity that falls outside of a monogamous marriage between a husband and wife. So, why does Paul mention it here immediately as a particular danger to holy living? Well, the first reason is that sex was everywhere in Thessalonica. The Greco-Roman culture saw no problem with any and all kinds of sexual pleasure. In fact, it was even part of one's religious duty. Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility, was honoured by parading statues of male genitalia throughout the city. And worship of him and many other gods involved things like ritual prostitution and orgies. And being as uninhibited as possible was actually seen as a sign of spiritual progress. Things are a little bit tamer in modern Melbourne, but not by much. The prevailing view around sex in our society is that as long as it involves consenting adults, anything and everything's okay. More than this, though, sexuality is seen as a key part of our individual identity and that it needs to be expressed and fulfilled in order to be a fully flourishing human being. Then anything that would put boundaries or limits on sexual expression is seen as repressive and wrong. Maybe not so different from the Thessalonian context. And this gives us more reason to heed Paul's warnings that sexual immorality can be an especially damaging sin in our lives. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul explains that all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Let's be clear. God created sex as a good thing. In and of itself, it isn't bad or wrong. But when we take what was designed as an act of deeply intimate self-giving between two spouses as part of the glue that holds their marital relationship together, and redirect it towards selfish self-gratification. The consequences for our hearts, souls, bodies and minds can be immensely destructive. Just one example of this is the way that a huge number of scientific studies have shown that watching porn can literally rewire the neural pathways, damage the dopamine reward systems and erode the frontal cortex of the brain, not to mention its harmful impact on relationships and mental health. But misusing our sexuality isn't just dangerous for individuals. It's particularly harmful on others. We only need to look around our city, turn on the news or just speak to our friends to hear heartbreaking stories of how the pursuit of personal sexual gratification outside of marriage almost always comes at someone else's expense. Whether the damage is emotional hurt or betrayal, physical harm, abuse, exploitation of the vulnerable, or the devaluing objectification of people. Sexual sin hurts everyone involved. It's never a victimless crime. And this is why, when Paul is talking about this issue in verse 6, he describes it as wronging or taking advantage of another person. And he follows this with a solemn warning that God will punish those who commit these sins. And this should come as a comfort for those who have endured hurt or wrong or abuse by others. These kinds of sins where vulnerable people are taken advantage of are really offensive to God and he takes it very seriously. But 
If you're someone who struggled in this area of sexual immorality, I also want to reassure you here that no sin, including sexual sin, is beyond the reach of God's grace. He stands with open arms, waiting and wanting to heal and forgive you. And he's also given you brothers and sisters to journey alongside you because you can't deal with this alone. So reach out, get help, know the transformative forgiveness of God. As God's people, we, like the Thessalonians, are called to live distinctly different lives when it comes to sexuality and to be set apart from cultures that put sexual fulfillment on a pedestal. And like the Thessalonians, our refusal to engage in the socially accepted sexual practices of the city around us might not just be seen as strange, but as bad, wrong, offensive. So what are we called to do in the face of this? Are we supposed to go into battle for the Christian way of life, fight against the current of our culture, call out any kind of sexual immorality we see in the society around us as loudly and vocally as we can? Well, let's see what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Reading from verse 9, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul's instruction here shows us that the call to holiness isn't so much a call to arms as it's a call to battle the sin in our own hearts. We're not called to give loud and abrasive proclamations of judgment on the lives of non-Christians, but to live with a deep love and quiet integrity to win their respect. We're not called to tell a culture who don't know Christ that they should live like they do know him. We're called to live like Christ so that others might want to know him. Some Christians might see this as a bit of a passive, easy way out, or somehow failing in our witness, but simply living differently uh, to our culture is often seen as a challenge without us even having to say a word. And it brings up a whole lot of opportunities to explain why we live like we do. Uh, if you've ever given up alcohol for a certain period of time, uh, you may have run into the somewhat strange phenomenon where when you tell someone at a social function that you're not drinking, they often respond quite defensively saying, oh, yeah, well, I don't drink that much, or I don't need to give it up, it's not like I have a problem. There's something about just going against a social norm that's seen as an inherent challenge to others' choices. A similar situation happened for me last year when I caught up with a close friend who knows, has known me for years and knows that I'm a committed Christian, and she just asked me, oh, you know, you've got this boyfriend, are you going to move in with him? And when I said, oh, well, no, because we're both really committed to saving sex for marriage. She didn't just seem, think that that was strange, she actually got a bit angry and upset uh, and seemed to suggest that I was doing something wrong, like I was repressing desires just to follow some kind of meaningless rule. And I found it really hard to know how to respond, partly because I was really taken aback by what she said, but in the end I actually had a really good opportunity to explain how I wasn't just following a rule for the sake of it, 
but I genuinely believed in the goodness and wisdom of God's design for marriage and for sexuality. And I ended up being able to share a bit more about how the Christian worldview made sense to me in a depth I'd really never had the chance to do before. Um, In sharing this story, I don't want to give the impression that I always have great responses in these kinds of situations, because sadly that's not always the case, but I did want to encourage you that when the call to live a holy life leads you to swim upstream against the flow of our culture, it's there that we often have the greatest opportunities to point people to the strange goodness of God. Every time, place and culture will have its own pitfalls when it comes to pursuing holiness. For us, just like the Thessalonians, sexual practice is a big one, but it's not the only one. The point of Paul's warnings here is to make us aware of how we can be pulled away from God's call to holiness in so many different ways. God's standard for holiness is much higher than we'd like to think. And our temptations to sin are a lot stronger than we know. Even when we're convinced that God's way is the best way to live, the reality is we don't live like that all of the time. We still sin. We still have days where it's just easier to follow the crowd than to follow Jesus. So what hope do we have to really make progress in the right direction? What resources, what hope, what power do we have to keep living for God even when it feels really hard. Well, let's look back at our text for a moment. While verse 7 gives the command to be holy, verse 8 gives us a promise for a power that will make it possible. Verse 7 says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Then, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. What pulls us away from holiness? It's the lie that God is withholding, that he's not really good, that he doesn't have the best for us. The Holy Spirit, the great counsellor and comforter, lives inside each and every Christian. And one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to take what Christ has done and make it real to us in the depths of our hearts. He helps us to know and trust that God really is good. And this spirit-filled conviction is the only way that anyone truly changes. For those of us who are inclined to despair when we're overcome by the guilt of our sin, the Holy Spirit reassures us of what Christ has won for us out of his great love for us. He fills our vision with the great exchange at the cross where the only person who ever lived a life of perfect holiness was punished in our place as a wretched sinner so that we could be made holy. Sin will persist in us until Jesus returns, but it changes nothing of our standing before God as dearly beloved and gloriously righteous in Christ. The fact that our status as sanctified is completely secure Uh, should free us and spur us on to keep loving and obeying God as best we can. But there are those of us who find it a lot easier to trust in our eternal status as holy, but find it a whole lot harder to find the motivation to obey God in the here and now, in the day-to-day. Maybe you've sort of given up because 
you don't actually think any change or improvement is possible. Maybe you've just accepted that certain sins will just always be a struggle for you in your life. If that's you, maybe you need to be reminded of the Spirit's power to change. As we read before in 1 Peter, it's the Spirit who sanctifies us as he dwells in us. If you can trust the Holy Spirit to take you from being literally dead in your sins and reborn into new eternal life, you can trust that he will accompany you in that new life, working in you as you walk with Jesus and slowly replacing the sins in your life with good fruits of love, compassion, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Of course, we have an important role to play in our sanctification. We can do things to help rather than hinder the Spirit's progress in us. As God grants us the gift of faith, we can respond by leaning on him each day, praying for help to resist temptation, actively removing ourselves from things that might cause us to sin, and asking God to shape our desires for better things that please him. But that journey towards holiness becomes a whole lot easier when we actually want to be holy, if we long for and desire holiness as our greatest good. Honestly, I used to really struggle with this. I couldn't get excited at all about the idea of becoming holy because my vision for what that was was so influenced by that cultural idea. I just had this stereotype in my head that holiness was just being serious and boring and legalistic and judgmental, regimented. I didn't want that. But it changed when I realized that the holiest person who ever lived was none of those things. It was when my vision for holiness was transformed by my vision of who Jesus was. His kindness and compassion, his humility and service, the way he always had time for people, the way he delighted to show love and grace to the sinful and the poor and the marginalised. That's holiness. And that's the Spirit's power. To not just understand in our minds, but to experience in our hearts the captivating beauty of who Jesus is and who he wants us to be. So to finish, just as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, keep going as you have been, more and more. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and as you read more about him in the scriptures, speak about him with others and sing songs about his glory here every Sunday. Let's keep praying that the Spirit would make Christ's holiness so beautiful to us that we'll joyfully join him in the lifelong journey of being remade into his image. Let me pray for us now. Father God, we praise you for your holiness. We praise you that you are perfectly loving, just, merciful and good. And we thank you, God, that even though on our own we are none of those things, that you've made it possible for us to change and become increasingly like our Saviour Jesus, who embodied your holy character perfectly. We thank you that we can rest in the hope that thanks to his sacrifice on our behalf, we can come before you in confidence, knowing that Jesus has already declared us holy in your sight. Lord, we love you and we long to be made holy as you are holy. Please continue to be at work in us by your spirit. Help us to let go of sin and to cling to you.
fill our hearts with a vision of the beauty of Jesus' holiness. And as our lives increasingly reflect his glory, would you use that to draw the lost around us towards you? We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.